So I've been thinking about a interview I saw in the Guardian recently with P. D. James, Phyllis James, that probably many of you will know, was the inventor of that uh, detective, poetry-loving detective, Adam Dalgleish, and I think she she's still writing his novels and or novels about him, and although it was her 90th birthday, the the interview was uh, celebrating her 90th birthday, and and it was just lovely. The, uh, it was a, a video interview, and just to hear the, the maturity of her years, and and the common sense, and the groundedness, and the no nonsense, and and just, there is something I find um, very nourishing about listening to wise old people. And you get one has to say 90 years old, and uh, I also had another. Um, couple visiting recently here. She was 90 and he was 86 or 87 and and just very virtuous, good people and spending time in their company. I, uh, this, this is just very enjoyable, very delightful. And, but in this interview with, uh, with Phyllis James, one of the things that she said that really struck me and uh, I wanted to comment on this evening was how... She had stuck with the a very traditional convention of how to write a detective novel. The interviewer commented on this and and pointed out that uh, you know this particular format, this particular convention for how you structure a detective novel was created around the early part of the last century and and she stuck through it and still sticks to it now throughout. And and the interviewer was, was asking you, you know, what do you think about you know modern writers and their creative approach and how they deal with these things and um, compared to your style and have you ever felt tempted? And her, her response was just so uh, no no axe to grinding, but just so clear and confident that that for her she said that that the convention actually liberated creativity. And, and she, she commented that she thought it was rather silly when people said that a convention or structure uh, actually stultifies or, or obstructs creativity. And she made the comment, she said, it's, it's very fascinating or very interesting to learn to see what you can do while living in a straitjacket. And, and also, in her view, she was commenting on uh, poetry and said that as far as she's concerned, the most beautiful poetry ever is written as being within the, the very strict form of the 14 lines of the sonnet. And, and everybody probably knows that you know, the sonnet is not something you can just get creative in your own terms about. You know, the, not that I know much about it, except that there is the, the Shakespearean sonnet and then the, the, the Italian sonnet. But within the 14 lines is also a very, very clear structure. Or the Japanese haiku which again, a very, very clear structure. But you'd have to be pretty unaware to say that that structure uh, inherently obstructs creativity. 
know, quite the opposite. And, and in her case, she said it really liberated creativity. And so I was reflecting on this and and uh, how it is with uh, the world we live in these days and the attitude towards forms and conventions and, and structures. And and then, you know, hearing the way she spoke with just such maturity about it. And and also, when I these days when I get to speak with Ajahn Sumato, uh, how how inspiring I find. I've known Ajahn Sumato for 35 years and I've ne- actually never enjoyed being in his company as much as I have these days. You know. Just there's something about the maturity of years and, and, and what it takes for understanding to really become embodied. You can, you know, you can maybe uh, have, uh, you can maybe learn about what it takes to write a sonnet and get the, you know, get the rules down. But before creativity is really able to flow through that form, one's got to become very familiar with it. I would imagine, I mean, I'm not, not a poet, but I imagine one would have to write lots of sonnets. One would have to really internalise the structure until you can completely relax around the structure. And then once you can completely relax around the structure with respect and sensitivity and mindfulness, well, then the creativity, the energy can flow through it. And, of course, it's uh, the same in, in, in many other areas in life, uh, in our, our, uh, the convention of, of the spiritual life of Buddhists. We, you know, we have these conventions like bowing. Uh, somebody was relating to me recently how they've just learned how to bow and they went through this enormous struggle, a very intelligent, capable man, mature person and and it wouldn't have occurred to me that he'd had any difficulty with it well that's because I've been bowing for the last 35 years but if I really go back and I think 35 years ago I also had struggle with it because it wasn't in my nature it wasn't in my character I wasn't trained to do bowing and yet this was the form and so one one learns how to do it and then once you've learned how to do it well then it's fine and and this man was was telling me that it was a, a relief once he actually found that he could do it or the same with offering incense. You know, there's a way we do these things, you know, like offering the incense with both hands. The form, it's not just some pointless tradition. The reason we offer with both hands the incense is because it's like the whole body, mind, is offering the incense. Or when we bow, it's called the five-point bow. The forehead, the two elbows, and the two knees, the whole body is on the ground. This is the, the, All of me is bowing down in front of that which represents wholeness, completeness, freedom, perfection, the Buddha. And we learn these forms. We learn how to bow. You know, people come to the monastery new and you feel a bit goofy and say, well, yeah, well, we all go through that, you know, just when you're ready, no hurry. But then after a while you say, oh, you actually want to learn to do it properly. And then you start feeling good about it. Oh, it feels really good to do this properly. Or with the offering of candles and incense, you know, part of the forms you don't. You don't blow the incense out because it's like blowing in somebody's face. You wouldn't do it. You don't blow in the Buddha's face. So you just got a little whack of the hand and you kind of a little wind. You turn it upside down. You also you don't wave the incense backwards and forwards and and throw the top of the the incense around because it's liable to land on the senior monk sitting next to you and burn his robes, which he's not very pleased about. That's a very practical reason. But also there are spiritual reasons, if you like, for the forms. You know, like 
you know, with the, the humility it takes to bow. You know, the opposite of bowing is me, upright, I can handle myself, and the rigidity in that. But when we can learn to surrender that and acknowledge, actually, I can't handle everything. I can't handle anger. I can't handle greed. I can't handle fear. If I could handle it, I'd just get rid of them all like that. I can't. It's more powerful than me. Little ego me. And so I recognize that I need to tap into, I need to go deeper, I need to find resources that are beyond me and my willful way of operating. And so I humbly bow myself and and trust that the Buddha's wisdom, the Buddha's compassion, the Buddha's Dhamma will inform me. And if we become supple, if we learn how to lower ourselves, relax the rigidity of me and my way sitting up straight and taking myself very seriously, if we're able to relax that and bow down, we soften and we can actually start to find become more transparent. And then some of these wild upthrusts of desire, greed, anger. When we're transparent, when we're not holding ourselves so seriously, well, then this, like the passion, can just pass through us. Just just pass through. If we're rigid, then when the stuff comes up, and just boom, and you you feel it, you know, I want, I can't stand, I will not. Me, mine, and it's so painful. So how do we realistically, effectively learn to become more transparent, become more supple, become more at ease? Well, we can't just intellectualize ourselves out of it. We can't just willfully get our way there. So we have this whole body-mind training. And so we have the conventions, we have the forms. But then if we take the conventions and the forms too seriously, well, then they become a pain. You know, people get very upset about you're not bowing the right way or, you know, the thing with lighting incense. Here, we light one stick of incense generally because it spoils the paintwork and all the smoke in the air. You've got to repaint the place all the time. It's okay in Thailand where you've got open-sided buildings and open to the elements all the time, the wind blowing through, and so you can light half a dozen sticks of incense and it's not going to give you cancer from inhaling all the smoke and spoil the paintwork because it's all blowing out We're here. Yeah. So we have a different tradition. Well, there have been occasions when people from traditional Buddhist culture have, have really told us off. He says, you've got to light three sticks of incense. So, oh, yeah, okay, <laughs> whatever. Well, the, the spirit, the point of lighting the incense is to show devotion, is to... Is to, is to open our heart to the possibility of realization. The Buddha was realized. When we offer the fragrance of incense, it's making this beautiful offering to the Buddha as a way of actually opening us up to this possibility. Well, if then we get all rigid and hold to the form and, and become all critical of ourselves and others because we're not doing the form right, well, then we close ourselves down again. So... The forms, the conventions that we use in life can be liberating of the spirit, whether it's if it's in writing or the creativity or if it's in, in spiritual life and the, the spirit of interest in Dhamma and our trust and our confidence, our faith in, in this way, in this possibility. Yeah. 
So if we're mindful, if we're sensitive in how we uh, relate to these forms, well, then they're really positive, supportive. And one of the reasons why I personally found I could get very comfortable with Theravadan Buddhism was because it doesn't get too heavy on forms. You know, sometimes maybe you get some fundamentalist Theravadan who, you know, you point your feet to the Buddha and they hit the roof and have a conniption fit and tell you off about it or... You know, you blow out the incense, they get all upset. Well, that's, you know, generally speaking, thankfully, in Theravadan Buddhism, uh, there's not much of that around. Uh, Most people use the forms skillfully and don't hold them too tightly. But we do need to be vigilant. We do need to apply ourselves to them. You know, whether it's writing sonnets, we've got to do lots of them before we can relax and let the creativity flow. Or with bowing or, you know, we're making use of the conventions that we have. Uh, we do need to ask. We do need to study. We do need to be alert. And you know, and I always encourage people. You know, if you don't know why we do something, well, then please ask about it. You know, sometimes it always surprises me when I hear from some of the junior members of the monastic community that there's something been going on for years, and nobody knows why it's happening. You know, they just say, oh, Ajahn Menendez said you do it that way. And so, you know, everybody just does it. Well, you know, that's fair enough up to a certain point. But there may be something behind it, some understanding that if we were in touch with it, well, then it would help us do it. You know, like with bowing. You know, I know when it had explained to me, we're not just bowing to graven images. That made a big difference. You know, we don't believe that that image up there has any great power over us, anything more than we give it. We choose to give power to that symbol you know, because it helps us, but in itself it doesn't have any power at all. Well, that understanding, I find, helps. So with all the conventions, my, my feeling is that it's, it's, uh, it's wise to, to ask if it's going to be helpful. And if you don't, well, then sometimes you can end up getting the wrong end of the stick. I know um, some years ago, Ajahn Chandasiri was in Wat Chat in Thailand and I think it was her first visit to Thailand and and uh, it was the all-night sitting, it was the, the full moon night or the new moon night or something and the monks and everybody were all going to be staying up until at least midnight, probably all night and and uh, I think maybe maybe she was still a Machi, I think maybe she was an Anagarakar in those days and anyway she was very generously and thoughtfully decided to make some... Uh, some tonic, evening tonic, evening medicine for, for everybody. Um, you know, some some allowable fudge, basically. So they have this thing, this allowable fudge, where you, you cook up cocoa and, and sugar, vast amounts of cocoa and sugar and uh, butter and salt, and you cook it up in the right way, and then, and then you've got to drop it into, into water, and it kind of forms, you know, nice sort of solid little edible pieces of medicine, <laughs> which. Uh, <laughs> People eat at midnight and keep them going for another few hours. Well, one of the senior monks went by the kitchen, and there was Ajahn Chandasiri, and what she had lined up, a whole table, she had this big vat of, of, of cocoa, and she cooked it all up in the right way, in the right proportions, and, and then she had lined up on the table, she had all these spittoons lined up, which she thought were cooking pots, and they were all full of water, and she was dropping blobs of chocolate into these spittoons until they cooled, and then... What she didn't realise was that actually these spittoons are, well, they're used for spitting and sometimes even used as a urinal and 
as a bedchamber. And to Ajahn Chandasiri, she thought that they were just nice-looking little enamel cooking pots because the convention where she came from in, you know, in Scotland, you know, something like that was for cooking in. But in Thailand, that was for <laughs> using other means. So not having the convention down, it meant that basically all this lovely chocolate was spoiled, you know, all the good intention, all the wonderful good intention, all the beautiful ingredients. It might have even been organic cocoa. But because she didn't have the right understanding around the convention, <laughs> it rather spoiled it. And so that's, that's, as I say, you know, it's worth asking about conventions. You know, what is this for? Not, not just to, not just to you know, pick them up um, idealistically or automatically or out of fear. Something, oh, I've got to do this, otherwise somebody will tell me off. You know, that's, not, that's not the Buddha's way at all. Again, one of the very attractive things about Buddhism in general, as far as I'm concerned, is that the Buddha encouraged asking questions. You know, he never criticised anybody for asking questions. He did criticise people for not asking questions. If his monks didn't understand the rules properly and they didn't ask questions, well, actually, that's a fault. If you don't understand, well, then you know you should ask. And, but it's how we ask. You know, are we asking out of interest? So basically, being mindful of how we use the conventions, to value the conventions, not to get too attached to them, not to get too precious about them, to slowly, mindfully come into a conscious relationship, a mindful relationship with the conventions. So what we've got is the, the forms are serving spirit, as one very wise woman I knew some years ago told me she said, we have to remember that the forms are there to serve the spirit, not the, servant, not the spirit to serve the forms. With religion, it's very easy. When it's been around long enough, people tend to forget. And so the spirit ends up having to serve the form. But the point of all forms is to serve the spirit. The point of the 14 lines of a sonnet is to bring about a beautiful poem. It's not just to make you unhappy. The point of the discipline around writing a haiku is to is to enhance beauty. Yeah. It's not just to you know be a frustrated Japanese person. Yeah. But sometimes you know some forms basically do pass the use-by date. That's true. Like we had this one where in Thailand, the tradition we grew up with, a form according to Thai society, was that that at the end of an evening puja, the monks would all, would all bow. The fully ordained monks would all bow to the senior monk and he puts his hands there in Anjali and receives their bow. And this is based on a, uh, 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 one of the minor linear rules um, about how to uh, conduct yourself around people who are ordained and people who are not ordained as monks. And then after the monks have bowed, he puts his hands down and then everybody else in the gathering, the samaneras, anagarikas, lay people would all bow. And so this was what we did in Thailand for years. And we just, you know, oh, that's what you do, so you do it. You know. And then we came here, and then basically it wasn't working for us. You know, what happens is you get you know, a monk, senior monk there with three or four other monks, and, and they bow to the senior monks. He's got his hands in Anjali. And then, and then he, they, he puts his hands down, and then the nuns have got to bow, and then the lay people have got to bow separately. And the whole thing, this is just not, you know, this just doesn't work. You know, this is... It looks like, you know, sort of second-class citizens. It wasn't, basically, it wasn't, 
working anymore. So what happened was one of the senior monks, he decided, oh, I don't like this, and so he changed it off his own bat. Well, he became very popular with the nuns very quickly because you know, the nuns now bow with the monks, and he's got his hands in Anjali at the same time, and he became very popular. But then some other monks came down there, and they hadn't heard about this change, and so you know, they just followed the old way, and so the nuns don't like this monk because you know, he's not you know, doing it the new modern way. Well, then we've got some problems in the community. Well, fortunately, because we're vaguely sensible, we got together and talked about it. We didn't just drive this guy out. <laughs> but we did say, well, if you're going to change a convention, the best thing to do is to let's talk about it first because changing conventions according to preferences can lead to confusion. Just because you don't like something and you want to change it doesn't mean to say that it's going to work for everybody. Yeah. Like if you're in England and you like driving on the left-hand side of the road, it's normal, you know, I'm understandable. But then if you go to Spain and you drive on the left-hand side of the road, there's a problem, a big problem. Like, you know, you might get killed, you might kill somebody else. So, well, yeah, but I like driving on the left-hand side of the road. I mean, Britain rules the way. We do it right in this country. We, we drive on the left, you know. It's, that's, I don't know who invented this other weird way of doing it on the right. And... You know, somebody was getting a ticket on themselves and thought they could do it better than us, but this is the way it should be done on the left. You know, you have some arrogant kind of interpretation of how you should drive. But actually, the better thing to do is say, well, let's see, it's just a convention, isn't it? You drive on the left, the right. People have been doing it for a very long time, and it seems like both ways work. So the better thing to do is to don't hold it too rigidly and just be mindful and say, well, when you're in England you've got to remember to drive on the left. And when you're in Spain, you've got to remember to drive on the right. And if you're chopping and changing, you've got to be very careful with how you use the conventions. And it does sadly happen. We had that Swiss Anagarika who went off driving in the morning and smashed and broke his two legs, which wasn't very nice. Um, you know, he was on the wrong side of the road. Nice car, nice road, nice Anagarika. Well, actually, he wasn't Anagarika then. He was before he became an Anagarika. Nice day, nice country, but his relationship to the convention wasn't right. So how we pick up conventions, how we understand them, how we use them, well, really, it takes a lot of mindfulness. Sometimes, sometimes there's room for being more creative, more flexible. Sometimes there's less. You do not write a sonnet with 18 lines. It's just it's not a sonnet anymore. It's something else, but it's not a sonnet. Like that, the story of, of putting the cat out before puja, which some of you will be familiar with. Uh, uh, somebody told me recently which, where this happened. I think some ashram in India where the, the cat would always upset the butter lamps during the puja, so they'd always put the cat out before puja. It became a tradition. It's almost like part of the puja. Before you start evening puja, you put the cat out. The cat's out, close the door, and do puja. Well, the, the Swami dies, the cat dies. What do they do? They go and buy another cat because you can't do puja without putting the cat out. Clearly, that was a convention, an assumption that had passed its use-by date. But we don't know. We don't know whether it's passed its use-by date or not when we first engage in the convention. So the wise thing to do is to go and see somebody who's been around a very long time like P.D. James, if you're going to write novels, it's good to go and talk to somebody like her. Or if you're 
you're going to engage the spiritual life where you're going to talk about not to not to the people who just started it and went on a weekend course somewhere and downloaded a program and taught themselves and then set themselves up as a guru but you go and find somebody who's been doing it for at least 40 years anybody who's doing it for less than 40 years will be very cautious so that includes me so anybody less than 40 years you wouldn't you know if you take one as a meditation teacher I would suggest being very careful likewise with a therapist Anybody who hasn't been doing it for a good period of time, you want to be very, very careful. The forms give you some power. The forms can be very powerful. But if your relationship with the form is not mature, not mindful, not wise, if you don't really see the place, if you don't really feel the place of the form, if you don't really know that the form is not it, the form is only there to enhance the spirit, if you don't really know that, well... You can start taking the power that comes from the form personally and then take advantage of the form. And that's unfortunate. Or you can fight the form. Mm. I'm talking with a a very venerable um, Japanese priest, Venerable Maranaka Soka Roshi, at a Buddhist Society conference. Uh, some years ago, and uh, it was with one of our senior nuns at the time, and and she was saying, well, it's taking an awful long time for this thing to take root, you know, this nun's tradition. And and he asked, he says, have you ever seen an acorn turn into an oak tree? You don't see an acorn turn into an oak tree, but it's in its nature. If the conditions are right, it's in its nature to become an oak tree. And likewise, with all the forms that we have, like the spiritual forms, like, for instance, the, setting up a nun's order in this culture, you know, we can't just take what we had in Asia. It doesn't work here, like the bowing thing. It doesn't work. We've got to change it. But how do we change it? And at what pace do we change it? Well, like Venerable Moranaka Sokoroshi pointed out, you know, acorns become oak trees very gradually. If you want something to last a long time, nettles grow very quickly. You can almost see them grow but they also die down very quickly. But if you want to see something grow, well, then we have to be incredibly patient. So we might know about the forms, for instance, the forms of Theravadan Buddhism. We might know how to bow. We might know some meditation techniques. We might know how to offer candles and incense. We might know about the scriptures. These are the forms. You might be able to recite the Tripitaka, but that doesn't mean to say you know the Dhamma. That's, a, that's, a, that's an approximation of the Dhamma. And so to remember that the form is there, it's got a point, so we, have a, we respect it. We, we put the Dhamma books in its own cabinet and we put them on the top shelf. We look after them. We treat them with respect. That form helps us lift them up. You know, we, we admire. The things that we admire, we lift up. We look up to people we admire. We put the Buddha image up because we look up to it. Actually, scientists have discovered that there's something happens in the brain when the eyes go up. Actually, it's part of the conditioning of the brain. Yeah. But conventionally speaking, you've got a shrine, you've got the, the form, the convention of a shrine. We keep it clean because we value it. If we value it, well, then actually we get more from it. If we have a, a shrine, we have a Buddha image, and we leave it on the floor or some dead old flowers there that we don't change well basically we don't really value the shrine 
and then it doesn't hold much value for us. When we bow down to it, we don't get so much back. So we, we hold it up, we, we cultivate these forms and the way we relate to them because of what it does to our hearts, not because the form is anything in and of itself. So if we have this mindful, uh, careful uh, relationship with forms, well then they benefit us. If they don't, well then they can hurt us actually. Religious forms can, can, we can abuse ourselves, we can abuse others by holding to them unskillfully or insensitively. I was talking to, some months ago, I was talking to one of our senior monks. Um, well, he was talking to me, actually. He was relating to, he'd been to visit another monastery and he was saying how, um, when we were together 30-something years ago in Thailand, uh, there were very few translations of the Dhamma and the Vinaya, the Vinaya, the monk's discipline. There were very few translations around in those days and, and what they were were, were pretty initial and you know, didn't, weren't very subtle or sophisticated. And so we... We used to keep our own notebooks and, you know, from talks that were given and translations from listening to Ajahn Chah and other senior monks, we would make our own notes and we would share notes and, and, uh, and we kind of got a good enough understanding of the discipline of the Vinaya. Uh, if it wasn't good enough, I think we probably wouldn't be here by now, so I'm sure it was good enough. But he was saying how he's visiting this other monastery and now there's all these young monks, they have access to all these new translations and... and, and and you know, often they've been studying Buddhism at university even before they joined the monastery. And he was saying how painful he found it to be these young monks are kind of challenging him on Vinaya. Well, he's been a monk for 35, 38 years or something. And these young monks would come and challenge him. No, your understanding's not right on that point. And, you know, and, yeah, well, you know, maybe they might be right. They might actually on level of form, they might be better than the senior monk. But they're so quick and, and so harsh in passing judgment on the senior monk. Well, that's not the point of the vinaya. Uh, getting absolutely every detail of the rules down so you really know all the permutations of all the minor rules and the major rules so that you can be right is actually abusing the vinaya. The, the point of the form of the vinaya is to internalize a sense of hiriotapa. In hiriotapa, the sense of, of shame for having done something wrong, the fear of being blamed for being lost in unwholesomeness, and in a wholesome sense, not in a neurotic sense of those words. You know, it's a bit difficult to use the word shame in any positive sense, but you know, to think of that you know, as a, that where you, you know, when you do something unskillful, like if you say something hurtful, intentionally hurtful to somebody, then afterwards you get this feeling, this hot feeling comes up and you feel ashamed. That's what the Buddha called a lokapala, a protector of the world. The world here being an internal sense of order, a psychological world. The world will be, in, in, will be integrated and balanced and functional when there is a wholesome sense of shame established or fear of blame. When Hiriotapa are not established, well then, the Buddha said, the world disintegrates. That's why when you come into the Dhamma Hall at the entranceway there, you, the door handle is a globe in the world which you pull open. And on the right side of that is two, two Nagas, Hiri and Otapa. They're the protectors. They're looking over the world. When Hiri and Otapa 
are looking over the world and others in a sense of shame and fear of blame in the wholesome sense, is protecting our sense of inner integrity, when they're there, well then there will be the possibility of Dhamma to develop. When they're not there, well then Dhamma won't really develop. So that's the point of the Vinaya. That's the spirit of the monk's rules. Or the five precepts, for that matter, or the eight precepts for lay people. The form is there so that Hiriyotapa can become established, well-established and conscious in our hearts. So then the Dhamma can deepen, the Dhamma can really be quickened and, and enlivened and develop and mature. But if we pick up the five precepts or the eight precepts or the ten precepts or the 227 precepts as a way of being right, you know, I keep the five precepts strictly. I do not drink alcohol and that slob over there does drink alcohol. Yeah. That's misusing. That's in legal terms. That's abuse of process. That's abusing the, the five precepts. Yeah. The precepts are there to help purify the heart, that is, free the heart from shamelessness. So in all the forms that we use, the, uh, whether it's around driving cars or writing sonnets or haiku or, or whether it's in the, the dimension of the spiritual life, it does require intense mindfulness, and intense mindfulness, constant mindfulness, to be reinvestigating, seeing how are we relating to the forms. Yes, the forms have a point, we need to respectfully pick them up and mindfully and patiently. And they have a beauty. The form can have a, a real beauty. That, like uh, the Buddha apparently was very beautiful. Apparently he's absolutely perfectly proportioned, radiant complexion. Even after all those years of austerity, he was stunningly beautiful. And that one bhikkhu, bhikkhu Wakali, was sitting there admiring the beautiful Buddha. And the Buddha reprimanded him and says, Wakali... You're looking at the wrong thing. Yeah. You're not supposed to be admiring the form of the Buddha. It's what the Buddha teaches that you're supposed to be looking at. And so outwardly and then inwardly, likewise, the, the form of meditation technique. When I was in Thailand last time, a young monk, he had listened to a couple of my talks and, and he came up to me one evening and said, Oh, you, you, you must have heard of such and such an Ajahn. And, um, or have you heard of such and such an Ajahn? And expecting that I had. I said, no, I don't think I have actually. He said, oh, you teach, you know, you teach the same method as he does. I said, oh, I'm teaching a method, am I? <laughs> I didn't realize I was teaching a method. From his perspective as a junior monk, he thought I was teaching a method. That, as far as I was concerned, I was just sharing a little bit of experience and practice and so, but what I had to say seemed to be the same as what this other monk, so-and-so, had to say. And he was seeing that the method is the point. You know, you've got to actually get this method down. And in the beginning, this is often the case. And it's even okay that it's the case in the beginning, that, that we do really the form is most obvious part. It's like when you meet somebody, their body is the first thing you see. On a subtle level, you might actually pick up something else, I don't know, but probably not conscious of it. But the first thing we, we see when we see a person is their form. They may be beautiful and, and, and gorgeous to look at, but then as you get to know them, you find out there's not much happening upstairs. You know? So you don't get fooled by the form. Or they might actually be not very good looking. But then as you get to know them, you find that their heart is rich 
with with kindness in their mind is 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 deep with wisdom and and the form is not the point but the first thing you see is the form so it's understandable that when we come to the spiritual life picking up meditation techniques the first thing we see is the form you know counting the breath or sitting upright but we've got to always remember that the form is not the point the form is there to serve the spirit so you can become a, a sitting expert and have absolutely perfect form but become very well become overly pleased with yourself about how well you sit yeah. or you can become so obsessed with the meditation technique that you you can just become rigid with it and maybe what's being called for in your meditation is to become a little bit more flexible maybe you know instead of instead of just be holding on to counting every outbreath one to ten ten back to one one to nine nine back to one one to eight eight back to one one to seven seven to one one to six six to one one to five five to one one to four four to one one to three three to one one to two two to one 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 to one one to two two to one one to three three to one one you can do that for years and it's a very very good exercise i think it's an excellent meditation technique but the point of the technique is to take you to some concentration. It's not just becoming an expert at counting the breath. Once there's concentration, you know, maybe there's other things going on, like perhaps there's restlessness, or perhaps there's fear, or doubt. Doubt is so threatening, and we don't even want to know about it, We want to be confident because when you come across the Dhamma, it's so inspiring and at last there's something that really makes sense. I can give myself to this completely and you feel so good and you've got so much confidence and faith in the Dhamma. And then after a while, well, that your initial faith starts to wear off and then some creeping doubts start to creep up. You don't want to know about it. So you just use your concentration to push them aside. It's just one to two, two to one, one to three, three. And then any meditation... Really, after you've got some concentration, maybe the time is actually, what's the nature of doubt anyway? What is doubt? Do I have to be afraid of doubt? Well, maybe you can see that after a while you start to say, well, actually doubt, you know, doubt is an expression of interest. We want to, because we want to know the truth, we doubt. Doubt doesn't have to be threatening to us, you know. On the outside, on the level of form, the way the form of doubt appears to us is it's threatening. And so we just push it aside and come back to trying to get back to feeling good about ourselves again. The same with anger. The initial, on the form level of anger, it can appear so attractive. When anger flares up, you just want to thump somebody or at least say something nasty. You just feel, if it's really a real upthrust of anger, what I want when I'm angry is to hurt. And it can appear so convincing. It just feels so justified on the outside, on the level of the form of anger. But as we get more subtle and as we practice letting go of the way we hold forms, becoming more sensitive, more mindful, seeing beyond the form to the spirit, to the essence, to the reality. You see, actually the reality of anger is it hurts me when it flares up. The reality is it poisons my consciousness. 
That's the reality. But we don't see that initially. Or desire, when desire comes up, the, the external level of desire, the apparent level of desire, the form of desire is, it's the story is, you grasp this, you follow it, you'll be happy. For sure. That's the story of desire. No desire comes to you and says, don't believe me. All desires come up with the same story. Grasp me and I'm going to make you happy. That's the initial. But we don't want to grasp at the level of form and go beyond that and start to sense into, from our own interest and letting go of initial assumptions, and start to feel for ourselves, what is the truth, what is the essence, what is the spirit, what is the, the meaning of this movement and consciousness that I'm experiencing as desire? What is it really? So this is you know, mindfulness regarding forms, again, outwardly, and the conventions that we use, but moving more subtly inwardly. That's the real point, so we're not fooled by any forms inwardly, any of the appearances in our mind, the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions, the sensations. These are all appearances. These are all forms. But if we're not seduced into grasping at them and assuming there's validity in the way they appear, then it's much easier to let go of them. And then we've got a mindful relationship to them. Maybe they're wholesome forms. Maybe they're wholesome mind states. Maybe they're wholesome emotions. But we won't be following them from a place of grasping. We're following them with mindfulness hopefully understanding. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.